Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways to address them when you're short of time. I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is assessing risks. All plans include risks because transition roadmaps are based on assumptions about the future. Knowing what could go wrong removes the surprise factor and potential knee-jerk reactions when things don't go as planned. The proactive assessment of risks also demonstrates that you've thought through the plan and identified potential blind spots that could jeopardize your success. So how do you assess project risks that lead to greater awareness of organizational realities and the development of contingency plans to activate, if needed, which avoid distraction and cost? My guest today is Cindy Smith. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Hello, everyone. And thank you for inviting me to speak on your podcast. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks for being here. Cindy has 20 years of U.S. and Canada private and public sector change management and coaching experience with a focus on the financial sector. She is also Canada Country Co-Lead for the Change Management Institute, CMI. Cindy, what has been your experience with assessing risks? Thanks, Bill. Well, as Harvard Business Review states, change initiatives themselves are born from a risk assessment. Someone decided that the risk of doing nothing is more than the risk of embarking on this change journey. So that's rationale for change practitioners to embrace risk. It's the reason that we have changes. It's the reason that we have a calling in order to help people achieve these outcomes. So I want to ask the question, how do you scale your risk activities? One way to do it is to ask the sponsor and the sustainment leadership this question. To what extent is the success of this initiative dependent on people successfully altering their behaviors and express it as a percentage? So a sponsor might say, well, you know, I, I think 30% of the successful change is going to be based on people altering their behaviors. And 70% is the new technology that we've invested in, or the new process, the new company, whatever it happens to be. Two things come from that. First, no matter what the answer is, you can now identify a potential value for your change management activities by applying that percentage to the expected return from the business case. So let's say your business case said, well, return is going to be $3 million over the first year. If 30% of that $3 million is based on people changing their behavior, then you've got a $900,000 value that's related specifically to change activities. So now you've got a value. You can have a discussion around risk tolerance, around that value to justify your change management activity. So based on your numbers, Mr. Sponsor, it looks like $900,000 of the value that you expect from this initiative is dependent upon successful change practitioners, successful change management activities. So that's why we're going to do all of these various things. That's where the value of change management comes in and risk. And I want to thank Dr. Ed Cook from the Change Decision Organization, who provided me with the insights on the return on investment of change for this particular perspective. I started my career in the branch system of a large financial institution. And at that level, you're concerned about risk on a number of fronts. 
it's a business. It's also considered a social entity from the perspective of a lot of local people and senior citizens. And you've got HR risks. You've got defalcation risks. And if you don't know what that is, that means that people finding a way to cheat the bank out of their out of the money, cheat the customers out of money. You've got lending risks. You've got mortgage risks. You've got risks of the environment and you've got the premises. You've, there's just so many risks. So that's where I came from. That's the perspective that I had at the time was running the business and being part of a larger organization. I moved into projects as a voice of the branches in the large head office environment in the 80s, when things were really changing from a technology point of view, from an operational point of view, remember process re-engineering and all kinds of new technology that was coming in and the banks were jumping right on it. So from a project perspective, I learned how to systematically assess risk. And from my project world, I moved into change management, and that's where I've been for the last 20 odd years. And risk and change environment has been a particular interest of mine, probably because of that background and because of who I am as a person as well. And I remember that time and I was one of those process re-engineers. So fascinating with, with the financial institutions because they do have a duty of care and there's compliance factors as well. I'm wondering, you know, when we talk about change risk, risk is almost a, an explosive word or it's emotionally charged, you know, risk, you know, that that could be something could go wrong. Why do you think that's the case with most organizations? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think there's three things that come to mind. One is that risk is a really misunderstood or not understood area. And again, I can only speak from financial services point of view, which is kind of funny because you think they'd be on top of risk from all aspects, market, investment, all of that. But I think on a personal level, people don't understand risks. They have trouble interpreting it and therefore it has a fear factor because it's unknown and it's dark and it's not something that you want to spend time in. It's also not in your face. So if you are facing a transformational change, really your concerns are really the pragmatic, the most critical, the most urgent concerns for that particular piece of work, not those things that might happen. So it takes a back Beat. And it's difficult to bring that to the forefront when people are dealing with their urgent issues. And thirdly, I'm going to refer back to uh, the term irrational exuberance. When a change is first discussed, people are unrealistically excited about it and really don't want anybody raining on that parade, particularly at a time when you're trying to sell that idea. So it's very hard to get people to shift gears and take reality into consideration. Wow, that is fascinating, isn't it? Because there is so much of selling at the beginning when the change, and I think there's a pressure for everyone to say we're on it, you know, whether it's speeding to a, a quick change plan before you know what's changing or exactly. you know, we, we've got the bulletproof transition plan to go to new ways of working. But I would imagine that's probably the riskiest approach that you could take. Have you ever experienced that where there's such a desire to say this is perfect and you know from your experience that there are risks in anything we do? One example comes to mind where we were changing the platform in the branch network completely. So moving to Windows for the first time, moving to intranet for the first time. And I recall um, one senior executive was so excited about this. They just, you know, the, the uh, opportunities with the new technology was just overwhelming for this person. And he used to, he was a great speaker and he'd go out and he'd get people excited and he got people excited about things that we weren't even planning on doing. <laughs> 
<laughs> so individual email was the example. He very excitedly was talking about what these new capabilities would be and told thousands of people that they'd all have individual email addresses and that, that they would be able to do all these great things and personal communications and wasn't true at all. And we all just went, collective inhale, what are we going to do now? So the risk was we were set up to disappoint. Oh. We were set up to disappoint everyone. That was really hard to deal with. But eventually we got through by focusing on the things they were going to get and all of the great things that were going to come with that. How do you flip a culture like that when you know that risks that aren't managed or there aren't contingency plans can really blow up and, and cost the organization exponentially? It's a great question. And it's a great situation to have when you've got that positivity going. You can really ride that momentum in your change work. But one thing, you have to tailor your discussions to the situation. So instead of confronting people with a risk checklist, find a way to work it into conversations. So when talking about outcomes, talk about, well, that's really great. Let's plan to get there. What if X happened? Or what if we couldn't get Y? What do you think would happen then? What would we have to do to get that? So make it conversational and sneak away and put it in your risk log so that you collect that information for later assessment. So I think you have to make it not an in-your-face discussion, but certainly get to the root of the issues through casual conversation and scenario planning. So play scenarios out with people, you know, let them talk it through and glean from what they're saying, what those risks might be and play it back. Oh, what I heard you say sounds like there might be a people risk involved there in terms of how much they have to change during that month that usually have a huge sales campaign. What do you think might happen? And that's a risk discussion, but it was just arrived at through casual conversation. The one thing that I have found effective, and it's sort of a middle ground approach, is to workshop it. So what I've often done is I've, you know, invited everyone, fed them pizza or donuts or whatever. Now, this is in a time when there was, you know, in-person meetings, which we'll have to find a way to alter that virtually, but eventually we will get back to something like in-person communications. But what I've typically done is set up a workshop and before the workshop, I will put up white uh, flipboard paper on all of the walls and the, the category would just be like a category of risk, people risk, technology, process, organization, culture, environment, all of those types of things. And then we would have, of course, the post-it notes and we would do a round robin exercise where we just talk about risks in general and people just mill around with their pizza slices and they go from post-it note to post-it note, putting on their thoughts about the different types of risks. And then we take sort of an open, narrow, close approach to it. And that might be a familiar pattern to some people who have done this kind of brainstorming activity, but not directly brainstorming. We do the round robin. So that's the open phase where we just get people to put down their thoughts and ideas. Doesn't matter what wording they use or if they're classifying it as a risk. It's just what they're thinking about that particular area. And then we'd sit down and take one sheet at a time and say, how can we narrow this down to you know, the few key ideas that are being expressed or that are underlying all these comments that people made. And then once we've done that, we then just close and say, based on these categories, let's pick the top three 
that we really think might be impactful. And then we do another round robin. People just go put their little colored dots on them. This is fun. You know, people don't mind and they get to talk a little bit with peers that they might not have been able to talk to. They meet new people in the process and find out what their concerns are. So this has been my sort of standard approach to creating a risk assessment and getting input from a variety of people. That seems like a secret sauce of good change, bringing people into a room. Why doesn't that happen more often? Because I've never heard of a risk assessment being done that way, which I think is wonderful. Why is it that it doesn't happen more often, do you think? Well, I think mostly it's time. People are time stretched. And these are not things that are, you know, bursting in flames in front of their face, which is what people need to put their attention on and feel that risk assessment, those what-if thinking and scenarios can be done at any time. Well, we don't have to do that this week. We don't have to do that today. And what typically happens is that you're three months in and people are still saying, well, we've got time. We don't have to sit down and think about that yet. Everything's on track. We don't have to worry about those things. Based on your experience of doing this in so many different organizations over the years, are there any watchouts that you would share with the listeners of, hey, don't do this because it leads you, you know, down the wrong path? And anything that you've seen, uh, or even with, with our peers that have done it and said, hmm, that probably didn't go as well as, as they would have hoped. Yeah, so one thing comes to mind, and it takes some more effort on the part of the change practitioner to get to the right balance, but you can't be the one to be calling everything a risk. You can't call out every risk and give it equal value. Even though in your mind, perhaps it does have equal value, but you have to think about what the clients, what the stakeholders are expecting from this. What are the outcomes and what are the critical risks to those outcomes? So one mistake is to not be discerning about the risks that you put forward. You have to, in consultation with your stakeholders, figure out which of those risks are going to be the ones that need to be worried about at the higher levels. I mean, as a change practitioner, you have a responsibility to deal with those risks that you have control over and segregate them out. They're not the ones that you need to be escalating and putting in the face of senior people. The ones that you need to be escalating and putting in the face of senior people are those that you don't have control of the factors that are required for those risks to be dealt with effectively. If you're dealing with a risk, it doesn't have to be eliminated. You have to understand how much mitigation a risk needs to get to an acceptable level of risk. You don't have to eliminate them altogether because that may not be what's good for the organization. It may not be the best use of resources. It may not be the designs and idea of the senior leadership. Some risk is tolerable. You have to, for those key risks, you have to find out where that balance is. And that takes a lot of discussion and communication with senior people, but only on your really critical risks or you know, a surprise risk that nobody thought of. So those unknown unknowns that are out there. And we have to be in a position to recognize those when we come and take action. So we can't be fussing around with all the minor risks and and be, you know, heads down in those. Yes, they matter. But if you have control over it, handle it. Find a way to handle it within the project team or your change team or with your stakeholders. So in doing that, what, what you end up doing is putting the risks in front of people who have the authority, the vantage point to understand that risk at a higher, broader level, and probably has the authority to remove the barriers that you don't. But your role isn't in necessarily removing the barriers, it's identifying what those barriers and obstacles are and finding the right 
person that can remove them and can understand the risk from their vantage point. Leaders have a much broader vantage point than change practitioners typically do. So they can bring to bear a lot more breadth and depth of the impact. What is the role of the leader in risk mitigation or even in risk identification and mitigation? What is their role? A few things come to mind. Leaders need to be able to provide reality checks, again, around what we see, what the stakeholder groups has come up with as risks, because they have, from their vantage point, as I mentioned, they have a lot more information, they've thought through a lot more, they have access to other leaders on a personal level, they can talk with them, they can discuss the implications on that level and bring to bear a new, better perspective. So that reality check is important. As I said, obstacle removal, that's really a primary thing that leaders should be doing and hopefully are doing for you. But they can't do that unless you identify what the obstacle is, what the loss is. So risk is all about a loss, a threat or a loss. Are there any kind of typical risks that you've seen over all of your assignments where you go, you know, most likely this is where a risk will be, maybe not, but kind of I'll go there first just to see if it's a big yeah. one. What, what could you share with the listeners? Because I think that that's a, a masterclass in itself. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. You know, risks around the vision and the understanding. We say you must have a vision. We say we want to create awareness and have people understand the impacts of change. But what if we don't get there? And what if we don't get there with critical stakeholder groups that have a significant impact on the successful outcomes? So risks around the vision. And do people see themselves in that vision? The second area is around, of course, engagement and adoption. There's tons of risks around there. Could be you get a variety of responses to change. And the response that we focus on most is resistance. But remember that there is a range of responses that could arise from the announcement of a change or engagement in change activities. So be aware of what that range is. Maybe we've got people who are extremely happy about this and you want to get them on board and help mitigate all of the risks and help move the change forward. So you, you could get, you know, again, as we mentioned, the stakeholder involvement levels, that's a huge risk. And the commitment levels of people over time, if you see stakeholders sort of falling off meetings or being delayed in some of their deliverables or activities, there's also the change fatigue, a change saturation. We have to be acutely aware of that now because change is the work of the day these days for most people. And we have to, again, I'd say, how do you know that people are change saturated? How do you know they're fatigued? What questions are you asking? Where are you looking? to find out if that's the case, if that's a real risk for you. Then we look at strong sponsorship and leadership. Mostly there, it's somewhere around the middle management gap that we have, a, we have the most risk. Those supervisors, team leaders, middle management, junior VPs, all of those people are really critical to the success and you need to find out what risks are hitting them more than anywhere else. Insufficient time horizon. So, you know, what we typically find is that in a projectized environment, the project team goes away and therefore so does the change representation. But it's really a, an ongoing role for at least a period of time where the business who has received the change starts to show the benefits and then you can kind of relax. But up until that point, someone needs to be cognizant of the fact whether the change stuck or not. So what's the stickiness of the change? And that's a risk too. It may not be sticky, particularly, and, and I can think of examples where 
you know, we thought we were kind of smart in, in doing something called parallel testing in real life. So we'd have the old system or the old process keep going when we had the new process going. And then we'd compare results only to find out that nobody used the new process anymore because the old one was still available. So parallel testing in real life doesn't typically work out except for highly controlled environments. Finally, environmental factors. So we need to pay attention to the environmental factors, the risks associated with those environmental factors that could have an implication to our change. So what else is going on within the organization, within the peer group of the people who are receiving the change? You know, what's going on in the news? What's going on in the social or political or civil environment? You know, interdependencies are, are, are sort of, I think, more of the complex uh, risks that happen that that aren't always understood. And, and then there's surprises saying, well, we can't do this because the system isn't set with the sandbox to test or whatever. And, and it, it seems like a misunderstanding or a misawareness of how things connect. Any comments on that? Or how do you do that well? I can give an example that might highlight a critical reason that some sort of interdependencies go missing. I was on a, a program that was partially going to introduce some new product and service within a unit of business. And we were going on the assumption from the management that we had a certain budget in that operating unit. We had a certain FTE and we made changes based on that information. And when we were almost to the end of the program and ready to launch, we discovered that there was another program that was going to reduce the FTE of the unit across the division. And the reason that we didn't know about it, so two things come to mind there. One, the risk was we didn't include the right stakeholders because they didn't seem to be critical for that change. So they were ancillary stakeholders like HR in a particular op, you know, operating uh, process change. We didn't think that was, you know, we had all the constraints, we had all the criteria, we knew what the business wanted, and they felt that we could do it within the constraints that we had. So... HR was sort of an ancillary stakeholder. And because they weren't our key stakeholders, we didn't engage them very early on. The other aspect of that was there was confidentiality. So that program that was going to reduce the FTE across the division was not talked about in large circles, even within HR. So it was very difficult for us to uncover it. And thank goodness we did before we got into real trouble and the misunderstanding or the conflict discussion was limited to the management level. Because once the managers involved in that unit were alerted to the fact that there was going to be some FTE reduction discussion, well, they said, well, you know, what's going on here? The left hand is now providing new products and services and operating procedures for us. And the right hand is saying, you're going to lose people. So we should be talking to each other. So that was an example of how interdependencies, and again, everybody did everything right. Even the HR person that we did have access to wouldn't have had the knowledge about that confidential program. So sometimes it's going to be unavoidable, but the moral of that story is to connect with all the stakeholder groups 
even a little bit. Do you have any tips for people about how you respond to one of those bigger risks to create Mm -hmm. a a mitigating plan? The best contingency plan is the one that actually works. Now, I know that's a bit cheeky, but that's my (laughs) first response. My second response is that contingency plans have to work within the realm of your working dynamics. They have to be cost effective. They have to be on point. They have to be within the control and scope of your sponsorship and leadership. They have to be efficient. And there should be a way to measure the improvement once a contingency plan has been put in place. So figure out what those measures are going to be. The um, the way I have gotten there is by scenario planning. So again, having that sort of fun discussion, allowing people to offer anything as a scenario to fix a risk that might come true, and then narrowing it down to what are the key factors and how realistic are these things? What are the two or three realistic things that we might be able to do? So it's really down to imagining. And you know, in change management, we do imagine quite a bit. We have to, because it's, it's so ambiguous. And oftentimes your, your goals are ambiguous and the outcomes are ambiguous. They're not clearly defined because we are talking about dealing with people. And when people are involved, it's going to be messy and unclear and ambiguous. And we're going to trip over things every once in a while. So having those discussions with your critical stakeholders associated with that risk, like what if, if this happened, what if we did that? Or what if we didn't do this? How would that affect the outcome? Would that would we able to be able to live with the remaining risk, the residual risk that's in place, or could we eliminate it altogether? And in the spirit of change on the run, if you only had time to do one action that would help you assess risks, and and you've just been brought in, you, you have to get a, a clear picture of those big ones. What's the one thing that would give you the eighty percent results in twenty percent of the time? My tip is to create a cheat sheet that works for you and your environment and your company, and just carry it with you. And if you're meeting someone for coffee or if you're having a virtual coffee these days, check that list and just see, can I work any of these questions into the conversation so that it's a natural discussion and risk evolves from that discussion as opposed to being, again, pointedly questioned and in your face, which that's not comfortable for anybody. But have a cheat sheet and make sure that, and particularly if you know the organization well, you can customize that cheat sheet to risks that are typically associated with that organization, not just generic change risks. As we close off the show, is there like an insight or a watch out or a last point that you just want to share with people about assessing and managing risks? Consider readiness from two perspectives. There's readiness from the perspective of, are we ready to launch? But there's also readiness from the perspective of, are people ready to receive? So all of those people that will have to accept change, we need to know their receptivity and readiness to do that. So look at it from the two perspectives. Are we ready to go? Have we got everything in place? What about the catchers of this change? Are they prepared? Are they ready? Is operations ready to receive this? So Look at it from different perspectives. Try and be broader in your assessment of the risks to the outcomes that you're looking for. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. How can people get in contact with you if they have any questions or just like to connect uh, and, and have a conversation? Phil will provide my email information. I'm happy to have a discussion. You, get, you can find me on LinkedIn. And because I have a fairly common name... <laughs> <laughs> includes Change Management Institute in your search for me, and you're, you're more likely to find me. Finally, I am co-lead for the Canadian chapter of the Change Management Institute. And if I put that hat on for a moment and speak on behalf of the Institute, happy to talk to anyone who has an interest in change, particularly about what the organization, what the Institute has to offer in order to help you within your chosen profession. 
The Institute has standards, which are based on the exploration of up to a thousand effective change practitioners as to what competencies made them effective. And it's based on a competency model, not on a tool set, not on a methodology, not on a framework. It really focuses in on you as a practitioner and how you professionally achieve results based on the competencies applied. We also, of course, have a, a raft of interesting webinars from your peers around the world. So I invite you to take a look at the Change Management Institute, in particular, the Canada chapter by going to change-management-institute.com and taking a look at what's available to our members. Great, thank you, Cindy. Thank you for sharing. I'm a fan of the competency framework, which is really helpful you know, for seasoned practitioners, but also for people getting into our profession. And the webinars are awesome. So I'm always on the outlook for the next one that's being offered. So thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to share your perspectives on the Change on the Run podcast. It's been a pleasure, Phil. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our producer, Charlie Buckley, and thank you for listening. And the Change on the Run book and audiobook are available now, so you can check them out at changeontherun.com or your favorite bookseller. And until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change. <laughs>